0: Morning. Morning. Welcome to West Hills. Thank you, Missy, for the announcements. Uh, My name is Will DeVall. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at West Hills. So wonderful um, on behalf of all of us here uh, to have you with us, uh, especially if you're new. Uh, I want to say a special thanks to the folks from Redemption Church. Um, Yeah, Corey and his team. um, They're getting ready to launch a church in Kirkwood. And uh, we're just very excited to have them making the rounds through some of our Converge churches. Um, That's our denomination, in case you didn't know, and you're here this morning, uh, Baptist General Conference Converge. Um, So we're really excited to have them with us as well. Uh, This morning, we continue our journey together through the Gospel of Mark. Um, We have loosely been following Mark's timeline uh, through his book, but our approach has been more thematic than it has been chronological Um, And last week we finished up a three-part mini-series on Jesus and parables, and before that we had looked at Jesus and miracles, before that we studied Jesus and healings, um, and before that Jesus and demons. And so this morning we continue our thematic exposition through Mark in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, as we discuss Jesus and religion. Now, religion is one of those loaded words with about as many definitions as there are people to define it, and so I want to share with you my own definition, lest you think as we go through this morning that I'm saying something in this sermon that I'm not trying to say and get offended. Personally, just cards on the table. I don't care for the um, label religious for reasons, which I think will soon become clear in this sermon. Um. Perhaps you do consider yourself religious, and depending on how you define the word, that might be a great thing. Um, I can't find a clear-cut definition in Scripture. The closest is probably James 1, where James tells us if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. But James is really describing religion there uh, more than he is actually defining it, what it is in its essence. And so let me offer a definition for us to consider this morning. Religion is man's attempt to make sense of the universe. At its core, I think that's what every religion is trying to do. It's trying to help us make sense of our world, provide us with answers to life's deep, most important questions. Why is there a universe at all? How did did all this get here? Why am I here specifically? What is my purpose in life? How ought I to live morally? What's wrong with the world? Why is there so much evil and how can it all get fixed? And finally, where is all of this heading? you know what what is the end of history and where do i go personally when i die these are important questions and scripture no doubt offers its own answers to each but i want to take the really radical position this morning and i think more importantly we're going to see jesus take the really radical position in mark chapter 7 this morning Some scholars consider this passage to be the most revolutionary thing Jesus says in all four gospels. So that's saying something. The extreme stance that, by my definition of religion, man's attempt to make sense of the universe, that Christianity is the only religion in the world that is not actually a religion, that authentic biblical Christianity does not fit with that definition. Of religion. And as we study our way through Mark 7, I see three questions arising out of this text that elucidate for us the difference between religion as such and true authentic biblical Christianity as defined and modeled by Jesus. And so that's That's your full title for this sermon, if you want to write in the subtitle in your bulletin, Jesus and Religion, or I might even say Jesus versus Religion, subtitle, three questions for discerning the difference. Three questions for discerning the difference. So uh, let's dive in together. Uh, Would you stand with me as you're able? Uh, We do this here at West Hills. We stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. I'll read it for us from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. "'You leave the commandment of God "'and hold to the tradition of men.' "'And he said to them, "'You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God "'in order to establish your own tradition.' For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear from you this morning. We do not need to hear more words of men. We do not gather here to celebrate and prop up our own traditions, but to highly exalt you and your word. Father, would you help us this morning to humble ourselves and place ourselves in submission underneath the authority of your word For our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first question we need to ask to determine whether we are dealing with Jesus or whether we're dealing with religion is, who's the authority? Look at the stark contrast painted here in verses 1 through 13 between the two answers Offered On the one hand, you have religion's authority, as articulated by the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 5, who asked Jesus, "'Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders?' And on the other hand, you have Jesus' own response to them in verses 7, 8, 9, and 13 over and over and over again. You teach as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You reject the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. You make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So it's clear, religion's authority is man. Jesus' authority is God. I tried to make that explicit in my definition for religion for you. It is man's attempt, humanity's attempt, to make sense of the universe. Christian theologians throughout the centuries have often contrasted religion with revelation. Religion is when man attempts to look up and tries to figure things out for himself, these deep questions to life. Revelation is when God comes down to make it clear. Do you see the contrast between those two things, the massive difference between religion and revelation? Religion is done by us, humans. It starts with us, the human, who looks upward, who looks outward, and asks, What can I deduce about this universe from my experience of the world? Religion is what's called in epistemological terms, a posteriori, reasoning and knowledge. It is experiential knowledge. It is knowledge after the fact. After having looked around and observed things, what seems reasonable to deduce and conclude about myself, about God, about the universe? That's what religion does. Revelation flips that upside down. Revelation is a priori knowledge. It is independent knowledge. It does not start with general observations from which we try and deduce cold, hard facts. No, Revelation starts with a fact. It starts with the fact of all the universe. It starts with God. In the beginning, God. It's his universe. We are his creation's Scripture is his inerrant word, and Jesus is his incarnate Son who speaks with a priori authority. That's what got Jesus into so much trouble in his day. Listen to Mark 1. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes who possessed authority. Matthew 13 he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, "Where did this man get this wisdom? Is not this the carpenter's son, Joseph? Where then did this man get all these things?" And they took offense at him. Why? Because their religion had become so much about the wisdom of men, the tradition of men, the authority of men, that Jesus's lack of a proper religious pedigree was an affront. To their religious sensibilities. Jesus didn't have a rabbi. He didn't need one. He didn't study in their synagogues. He didn't need to. He was God in human flesh. He possessed authority inherently. But for these scribes and Pharisees, authority was always derived, it was derivative. It wasn't about closeness to God, it was about closeness to man. Who did you study under? And they would brag about their rabbis. That's why Paul in Acts 22, during his trial before the Jewish leaders, Paul declares, I am a Jew educated at the feet of Gamaliel, because he was well-respected. Paul knows that this is the language that these guys speak. So he name drops. That's what matters to them, human authority. But not only had they traded closeness with God for closeness with men, they had traded the word of God for the word of men as well. Their traditions of the elders, according to 1st century Pharisaism, and actually according to 21st century Judaism still today, there was the written law, as recorded in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, but then there was also the oral law, which was supposedly this divinely inspired interpretation of the Old Testament, passed down from teacher to teacher through their rabbinical system. And this oral law was itself finally uh, concretized and put into writing in the 2nd century AD and called the Mishnah. But then you had the rabbinic commentary on that interpretation of the law called the Gemara. And then there was the later compilation of both the Mishnah and the Gemara with some additional later commentary tacked on called the Talmuds. And altogether, these traditions of the elders comprise thousands and thousands of pages For instance, there's an entire volume dedicated to ritual hand-washing. That's what these Pharisees here are expecting Jesus' disciples to follow in verse 5. The disciples aren't breaking any Old Testament law here. Notice their charge. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Not Scripture. The disciples are breaking their additional piled-on rules. There's nothing in the Old Testament about washing your hands after you've come from the marketplace, verse 4. Later interpreters of the law added that on because they were afraid that in the marketplace you might bump into a Gentile or a menstruating woman or someone who had handled a reptile, all of whom were considered unclean by Old Testament law. So these traditions of the elders were originally an attempt to, to what was called fence the law. It was to put an extra hedge of protection against violating the law. For example, the Old Testament strictly forbids work on the Sabbath. Well, what's the next question? What constitutes work? We better write out a few dozen volumes of commentaries detailing the difference between work and not work. Thousands of pages Mark notes in verse 4, there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, dining couches. John MacArthur points out, there are 30 chapters in the Mishnah just devoted to the ritual washing of pots and pans. That is what their religion had become these first century Pharisees and scribes. No wonder they were so highly esteemed in first century Judaism because the average illiterate Jewish peasant would have needed a rabbi just to weed through all these additional extra rules and rituals imposed on them. But the biggest problem was that rather than being a helpful fence around the Old Testament law, their tradition had actually become a law unto itself. In fact, the Jerusalem Talmud claims of itself, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than the words of Scripture. And yet, they killed Jesus for blasphemy. So Jesus confronts and exposes them. They have perverted the word of God with their unbiblical traditions. They are no longer fencing the word of God. They are burying it. Burying it under a heap of anti-biblical laws. Not just unbiblical now. These are anti-biblical laws. Like Corbin law. It's the example he gives them. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition Moses said, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die, but you say, your tradition, not God's, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, and you make void the word of God by your tradition. What's this all about? John MacArthur explains the word Corban. It referred to offerings of money or material goods that had been pledged to God. A tradition arose, in Judaism, for allowing people to declare their possessions, Corbin thereby promising that they would eventually use their resources for sacred purposes. Even if a man's parents later asked him for financial support, he was forbidden from using anything he had declared to be devoted to God in order to help them. The rabbinic system thus provided adult children with a loophole by which they did not have to assist their aged or needy parents, and yet they could still appear to be loyal worshipers who gave generously to God. Though a person could declare all of his possessions Corban, he was not required to donate them immediately. In fact, whenever he wanted to use them for his own purposes, he could just reverse the vow by merely saying the word Corban back over them again. This whole hypocritical system allowed people to maintain an external veneer of dedication to God while simultaneously turning their backs on their parents. And this is exactly what religion does, isn't it? Anytime man becomes the final authority, you necessarily end up with a perverted, corrupted, sinful, hypocritical, self-serving set of rules like this Why? Because man's not the solution. We're the problem. That's that's the second question for discerning whether you're dealing with Jesus or religion. The second question, where is the problem? Where's the problem? According to religion, the problem is all external. Hence the Pharisees' emphasis on staying away from these polluting agents like Gentiles and menstruating women. The problem's out there, so I've just got to stay away. According to Jesus, the problem, my problem, your problem, is internal. It's not out there. Our deepest problem is in here. MacArthur quips, It is not unwashed hands that defile a person, but an unwashed soul. Consider verse 15 here. Jesus makes his point as we've seen him in recent weeks, in the form of a parable. He says, there is nothing outside a man that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Matthew's gospel makes the parable even more explicit. Jesus says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled So this week really could have been part four, week four in our mini-series on parables, and I could have titled this sermon, The Parable of the Poop. (laughs) I want to preach like Jesus. You guys would fire me if I started using poop in my sermon illustrations. But Jesus, I mean, it's a perfect metaphor, isn't it? It's not what's on the outside that goes in that is unclean. Thus he declared all foods clean, but rather what's already on the inside, that comes out that is truly nasty. His point is basically, we're not sinful because we commit sins, friends. We commit sins because we're sinful. Sin is just what's already inside us coming out. Have you ever said or done something, and then like two seconds later, ask yourself, where did that come from? Like you're having a pretty good day, feeling pretty good about yourself, pretty sin-free day, you think, and then you get cut off in traffic and the four-letter words just start flying and the guy turns off the next exit and he's out of your life again and you think to yourself, where in the world did that come from? That was inside you all along. It's just waiting to bubble up. God just used that jerk to remind you of what's still down in there, of what's still in your heart, that you are still a sinner. You are still in desperate need of his grace. I love the story told of the brilliant theologian G.K. Chesterton when the Times Magazine sent out an inquiry to famous authors of the early 20th century asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? And they offered a prize to the, the author who could give the most profound response, and Chesterton's reply back was simply, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Parents, are you as concerned with what is already inside your kids, with their hearts as you are with their school environment, with their peer group, their friend group that they hang out with? I'm not saying that we shouldn't desire for our kids to be surrounded by positive influences, but do you recognize that the single greatest threat to your children today is not anything that's outside them. It's what's already in here. It's not their secular public school curriculum. It's not the music they're listening to on the radio. It's their sin. Do you know that? And if you think that being the gatekeeper of everything that goes into your child is going to ultimately save them, you are fooling yourself. And by the way, good luck with that in the the world we live in, of smartphones and the internet, good luck playing gatekeeper. The problem's in here. Jesus may have shocked these Pharisees, but if they would have dug in to the word of God and dug out the word of God from underneath all their empty traditions, they would have recognized that Jesus was in no way original with his diagnosis of the problem here. This notion that we are what's wrong with the world, the idea of man's total depravity, our original inherent sinfulness runs all throughout scripture, even the Old Testament. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, five: behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's Jesus' diagnosis of the problem, a sinful human heart. And what is the cure that he prescribes for our condition? A spiritually terminal condition, by the way. The wages of our sin, your sin, my sin is death. Romans 6.23, hell. Unpopular word these days. But what's the cure for that sickness, for a bad heart? We need a heart transplant. And once again, the prescription isn't just a New Testament innovation. Listen to Jeremiah 31. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, that's the thing. It's not that God doesn't care about us obeying the rules. He just knows that following the rules without true heart change, without his Holy Spirit reorienting your affections, empowering you, causing that obedience, devoid of that, it's simply behavior modification. Rules without heart change make for as Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs. You can elaborately dress up the coffin all you want, all the ornate trappings you want, but there's still a dead, stinking, rotting corpse inside. Unless, unless we've been born again. Jesus said, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. That is how you get a new heart. Friends, you must be spiritually born again. You must put to death your old self, crucify your sinful self, confess and repent of your sin, and be reborn to new life by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. That's the gospel. That's the prescription for the cure. That's the cure. That's not religion. That is relationship with a loving, merciful Savior. And relationships, healthy ones anyways, aren't grounded in behavior. If I had gotten sick this morning and had to stay home and miss preaching this morning, would I be any less your pastor? If this ends up being the worst sermon I've ever preached, will you love me any less? And be honest. <laughs> if so, then we have a transactional relationship. Based on my external behavior, a healthy relationship is a matter of the heart. And friends, biblical faith, New Testament and old has always been about relationship, and it's always been about a matter of the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. For Samuel 13, 14, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. It wasn't because David obeyed the rules better than everyone else. He didn't. It's a man after God's own heart. Proverbs 21, 2, The Lord weighs the heart. Even in the Old Testament law, where it can be easy to get bogged down in a long list of do's and don'ts and forget why God graciously gave his people the law in the first place, even in the law, God says it's still what's on the inside that counts. Deuteronomy ten twelve. and now Israel, what does is the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, As a father, I would so much rather my daughter genuinely love and respect me than arbitrarily and artificially obey all my parenting rules. She could theoretically obey every single rule and hate me in her heart and want nothing to do with me. And actually, that is exactly what these first century Pharisees were doing with God. Deuteronomy 36, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Do you see a theme here? This phrase, all your heart, occurs 17 times in the Old Testament. It's all about the heart, the relationship. And this is most evident in the prophets, in their calls to repentance Hosea 6.6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God and not burnt offerings. Relationship, not religion. Joel 2.12, return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Even your repentance has become a religious ritual, a show, tearing your garments, carrying on in loud voices in the town squares to be seen. Just be broken, truly broken. Heart broken over your sin. That is what the Lord desires of you. Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps i will not listen but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream you can keep your religious rituals don't bother singing to me this morning if your heart is not in it that's what i'm after your heart and finally isaiah 29:13 the verse that jesus quotes here in mark 7 people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men even what little they do respect God it's not out of heartfelt devotion but out of a sense of religious obligation it's taught by men it's merely tradition as radical and as unpopular as Jesus' diagnosis here was in the first century Jewish context, that we are the problem. I think it might be even more unpopular in our day and age today in the 21st century. We will come up with a thousand explanations with what's wrong with the world before we face the cold, hard truth. The problem is guns problem. No, no, it's not guns. It's mental health. No, it's violent video games. No, it's bullying. No, it's absentee parents. No, it's marginalization, underrepresentation in the mainstream media and culture. A thousand scapegoats because we don't have the brutal honesty to admit that deep down, in the darkest parts of our own sinful hearts, but for the grace of God, we are all just as broken and just as capable of the same kind of unspeakable evils. Where's the problem, friends? Is it out there or is it in here? Everybody wants to blame somebody else these days. Jesus wants to hold up a mirror for us. Finally, question number three, what's the fruit? This is how you determine whether it's Jesus or religion. What's the fruit? Here's how Jesus exhorted his disciples to tell the difference. You will recognize them by their fruits, Matthew 7. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then Jesus lists diseased fruits for us in Mark 7 in our passage. He says, From within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, thorns. These are thorns, these are thistles. Contrast that list with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, religion will never fix us, fix the root of our problems, pun intended, because religion wrongly diagnoses us with an external problem. You can't fix a problem. You can't accurately diagnose. Religion says the problem is the soil you grew up in. It says it's this tree virus that's going around right now. It says it's, it's the termites. Jesus says, no, the problem is the bad seed in your heart that has given birth to bad roots. And because religion can't fix the real root of that problem, its proposed solution instead is to grow petri dish fruit. Franken fruit. And it's never the same thing, is it? Test tube fruit? I don't even know if that's a thing scientifically yet. Um, But we can shift metaphors for a minute. Lab-grown meat? Anyone terrified of that trend? Or the, the, plant, the plant-based meat that Qdoba keeps trying to get me to eat? It's not the same. It will ne- I don't care how far the technology comes. It will never be the same. And neither will the fruit of religion. You cannot artificially create good fruit. Listen, friends. Your good deeds, if performed from an unregenerate heart, are a disgusting taste in the Lord's mouth. He would rather you just be totally self-serving. At least then you would be honest. Hypocrisy is Jesus' least favorite sin. (laughs) He'd rather you be honest. But let's preach this to ourselves this morning. Jesus' warning here isn't just for first century Pharisees. It's for 21st century religious folk as well. Friends, do we realize that hell is filled with religious people of all ages, all generations? It's filled with religious people. There are way more religious people than non-religious people in hell. Christians included. Claiming a label doesn't mean anything to Jesus. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, we attended church all our lives. Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. It was never a matter of the heart. Friends, do you know that your church attendance cannot save you? Your life group participation cannot save you. Your regular Bible study, daily devotions and prayers cannot save you. Your faithful tithing, 10% every Sunday, cannot save you. Your serving every other month in the nursery, even your serving every other month in the toddler room, cannot save you. If that cannot save you, then none of your actions can save you. (laughs) Friends, the only thing, the only person who can save you is Jesus Christ. All other ground is sinking sand, including your religion. Let's pray.